Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Jazz Ahead podcast. My name is Peter Schulz, and I'm one of the two artistic directors of Jazz Ahead. We do these series of podcasts and interviews and shows to shorten the time for you until Jazz Ahead 2021. And because there's just so much to discover on the international jazz scene and the German jazz scene that we want to take a closer look to. First interview partner is German pianist Pablo Helt, talking about his own podcast, his musical influences and his upbringing in the family. Welcome, Pablo Helt, to the first podcast for the next Jazz Ahead. We're both German, we talk in English because it's mainly for the international audience, not so much for the German audience, even though it's a strange situation that we both are German and uh, we talk in English. Anyway, we picked you as the start for the podcast because you do a podcast yourself. That's correct. You're not only a musician, but you do a podcast yourself. It's called Pablo Held Investigates. And that's basically interviews with uh, or talks with musicians. Uh, why did you start that? Was it because you were incontent with the with journalists or sheer curiosity, or what was uh, that made you start these uh, podcasts? Well, I'm I'm very interested in interviews myself. I've been reading interview books for all my life. Uh, I really like, yeah, what can happen in a conversation if both parties are present and listening and curious. So I've been always reading books like that, reading autobiographies, of course, too. But these interview books are really what I really like. But there were a lot of moments and also in podcasts I heard or in interviews I, I saw on YouTube, there were a lot of moments where it was like, where I felt like the interviewer was asking the questions would sometimes stop right in the moment where it got really interesting for me. Okay. That was one indication for me. So I was like, why do you stop now? I need this information. So um, the other day I was reading a book about Biddy Strayhorn, an old school friend of his talked about some easy things that he showed him on the piano that helped him tremendously. Mm -hmm. And the sentence stopped there and the story stopped there. And this is some like a perfect moment for me to step in. <laughs> I would be like, what is it that he showed you? Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of interviews stop right in the very, very uh, interesting parts. And uh, frankly, a lot of interviews are just sometimes a show for the interviewer to show off what they know by asking very, very clever questions. And I get really fed up with that mm -hmm. because when I'm in an interview like that and I get asked questions like that where I feel like it's more about the question than the answer or not even about the answer, I really like it when it's about the conversation, about the connecting. Then it's not really about questions or answers at all, but more about two persons connecting. And I feel with some jazz journalists, it becomes more a show of of their knowledge okay, or if they want to put you in kind of a position, you're this kind of player, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and okay. then you have to defend yourself. So these moments were an indication. And also whenever I'm on tour with somebody I, I really like, I ask them questions on, about how they do things and that can lead to a very, very long conversation. And we're on the road for a long time. So we have to spend our time doing something. And I think that's a very productive thing to do, to ask yourselves um, how you 
deal with the music. That's another indication. But the other one that is really important to me is that I, as I said before, I read a lot of interview books, but not only by musicians, but also from filmmakers, painters, artists, or actually anybody who is good at what they do. I like to listen to or read from somebody who talks about what they do, because if you're really good at something, you can usually also talk about it. And it's fascinating. The act of creation is fascinating to me. So I'm curious what goes into the act of creation. So I noticed that I was paying a lot of attention in the interview books about, you know, Michael Caine talking about acting and various processes of filming something and lenses and something. And I'm not an actor and I'm not a camera guy or whatever, but I'm interested because somebody's talking honestly and, and with passion about what they love. So I'm following even if I don't know the details, okay. which is why I took the liberty to ask very, very detailed questions that most journalists maybe wouldn't ask because they would think, ah, oh, the general audience won't follow. Okay. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. So you don't think about an audience no. uh, while you're making interviews. It's just your own curiosity. Yeah, and I think... Personally, for me, that's more fulfilling than when I would think of an audience. That would mean I would have to explain every little uh, theoretic thing or I would have to explain every name that gets referenced. Mm -hmm. So that is yeah. actually something that stifles the conversation sure. and puts it on hold for a while. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. You do not only interviews, uh, this was about interviews, you're a musician mainly and foremost, right. but you do audio commentaries in the recent weeks and months, audio commentaries on your own records. I found that a really interesting and thrilling thing to uh, kind of explain what is going on in the music. Thank you. Yeah. What did you lead to that? Well, it's basically something that is connected to also my activity on social media and how I'm doing things there on Instagram or Facebook. I'm basically doing the things there that I would like my heroes to do, which most of them don't do. But I would really love to, <laughs> to hear an audio commentary about Headhunters mm -hmm. or Footprints Live by Wayne Shorter or Bitches Brew or Word of Mouth by mm -hmm. Jaco Pastorius. Yeah. Sacre du Printemps, I would like to hear an Stravinsky. audio commentary of Stravinsky talking about him, you know, how he wrote this little section. So I'm doing it myself. And I haven't done works like these. Yeah, I just assume, and that's nothing that's egocentric or something. I just assume somebody will be interested because somebody bought the record. They might be interested. Although yeah. um, these videos don't attract an audience like the interview videos. And that's already a niche because... If you're honest, how many audio commentaries on the movies that you love have you really seen? You know, mm -hmm. and I've watched a couple, but I haven't seen many. But I really like that medium. The director talking about what went into making this movie, and that gives me a, some extra information that makes me sometimes appreciate the work even more. Yeah, and it gets closer. And it's fun for me to do it. Yeah, and it gets closer. I mean, that's what I feel. Mm -hmm. If a musician talks about what he's doing honestly and has a voice, to say the, uh, the first mm. thing, have a voice that's always more close to 
any audience that listens. Mm. And I think that's a very interesting, very good move that you took there. Thank you. But let's talk about what you do musically. I mean, you have a trio for more than 10 years. Uh, 15 years almost. 15 years. You develop the ability of collective improvisation to an extent that is enormous. What is the challenge for you then? There must be another challenge for this trio to further develop. The challenge is to get together each time. The challenge is to be present in the moment each time and not rest on what you think you know and what is your comfort zone. We're stretching our comfort zone every time. And we always talk about it if we feel like we haven't been stretching the comfort zone enough. So every time we go on stage or in the studio, that's another challenge. We don't think in bigger challenge, like we want to accomplish this or something. It's more really the challenge doesn't stop, which is what makes us continue, actually. But it's difficult to transfer that to an audience then, I think. Because the, the challenge that you have is on such a level that it's difficult for an audience to easily follow at times. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think it can be nice for an audience to see us um, maybe at the end and at the beginning of a tour because they see that it's two different concerts mm -hmm. of the same guys playing similar material maybe, but um, the way we do it on stage is that we play without a set list and without arrangements. So we could play tunes and we will play tunes, but also, we won't play tunes for a long time and be somewhere that is just happening in the moment. And it happens because you are there, actually. It happens because the audience is there. It wouldn't happen that way if we would just be the three of us. So hmm. the audience is such a part of the concert that if you would see us two times, you would see different things. And that's the challenge uh, for us and also the reward also every time. When you practice or when you rehearse with the trio, you just rehearse the tunes and do whatever happens in the concert? A lot of time it will be a new song that I wrote. We usually get together for that. But in uh, the recent weeks, we have been getting together and just practiced specific moods. Or like we would talk about something that we rarely do and then just play that for a long time. You know, a big challenge for us is to stay with things, actually, because we so like to move around that the actual staying with things, which is the comfort zone for a lot of music <laughs> and a lot of players, is not our comfort zone. So that's something we've been working on in the recent weeks, which was a great challenge and a great pleasure for us, too, because once you go where it doesn't feel as natural or as good to you, At first, it's a little bit weird or um, uncomfortable, but when it gets more comfortable, you feel like, yeah, you have learned another language or you've been to another country and you know a little bit more, which doesn't mean you have to go there each time you play, but it's just you broaden your palate. Explore. Yeah. Explorations, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Ascent and buoyancy are two terms in your last period that became important. What do they mean to you? I mean, I think it's not only physical. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I want my music to be something that is uplifting for the audience and the players. 
and myself too. So if somebody's listening to the music, I want somebody to feel like they're moved, <laughs> of course, in an emotional way, but also in, I don't know, spiritual way maybe, or that it has an effect on somebody that they maybe think about this music in a different way or think about their life in a different way. You know, us taking challenges in the music or taking risks in the music, I hope this will transcend to the audience that it's good to take risks and it's good to not know what's going to happen and to go to the places where it doesn't feel comfortable. I think that's something that I'm also working on in my life mm -hmm. with my issues, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm dealing with that in my life, but also in my music. And if that transcends to the audience and that might just be a little help or whatever, that would make me happy. Did your ability to improvise lead you better through the corona times, you think? The art of improvisation? Yeah, I, I definitely think that we as improvisers, yeah, we could take some lessons that we learned there and apply this to life. But also, I don't want to uplift us as improvisers now because right, all that we've done, you and me, Peter, uh, Peter and Pablo in this past 15 minutes is improvise. We've been improvising the whole time. So talking, talking for human beings or acting, or running, or um, looking is improvising. Everything is improvising. So we as improvisers actually have to remind ourselves that all we do in life is usually improvised. That's not true for many people, I think, I'm afraid. They don't want to improvise because improvisation is not about security. And that's true. But still, when you talk, you have certain things that you want to get across, but nobody plans every word every sentence sure. pre uh, the time when they actually talk it. Or also when you walk, you don't plan every step. Uh, that's improvisation. That's just natural. But I agree. There are people that are more secure, you know, rather not so risk-taking in their lives. And there are people who are more like that, of course. You played some compositions of your father as well even dedicated the record to your parents' uh, elders. Um, yes. Can you tell me about your uh, musical family background? I've been grown up with music ever since I was born. I'm sure I heard a lot of music when I was still, when my mother was pregnant with me. And my father is a piano player and piano teacher, composer, and my mother is a piano technician, plays the guitar and the piano And both are very, very interested in music, listen to music constantly and always trying to find new things that they haven't heard. So I've been growing up with a lot of different music, mainly jazz, I would say, and classical music. But there was also other, you know, Brazilian music. My parents loved Joni Mitchell and James Taylor, Shirley Horn, Alice Regina, Miles Davis, Keith Jarrett. Herbie Hancock, John Schofield, Pat Metheny, Quincy Jones. You know, the list is very, very long. And I, as a little boy, would pick LPs out of the collection of my parents that I was most attracted to by the cover. Mm -hmm. So Mahavishnu Orchestra, The Inner Mountic Flame, is an important record. Yes. Yeah, that's an important record for me. I love the cover and I love that Billy Cobham wears a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. 
on the back of the record and plays like that. You know, uh, that was fascinating to me. <laughs> Two bass drums, yeah. Two, yeah, double bass drum. <laughs> there's other records as well, like In a Silent Way. And there's a great record of Jose Carreras playing uh, Spanish songs that is very, very important to me. I would pick out these records again and again and listen to them and look at the cover and be intrigued by this music. And then I would just lie under the piano listening to my father play or lie on the sofa listening to my father and my mother play. My father also had different projects, bands that would come to the house and rehearse. So I would watch them. And as a little kid, I would start banging on things. So my father got me a drum set. The boyfriend of my aunt, who was a traveling musician, uh, what's the word? He was a street musician. There's an actual term for it, which I would like to say now, but it's not, it's not there. Busker? Busker. That's the word. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So he was a busker and he built all his instruments himself out of cans and, and whatever. And it was a very funny guy. He's still traveling. He's still making music. They're not together anymore, but you can check him out. He's called uh, Ramblin' Dan. Mm -hmm. Professor World Band. That's him. Rambling where? In Germany or no? He's in he's in America right now, I think, okay. and he's from there. Okay. So he was a, an important guy for me too, and he built me my first drum set. That was my first drum set. Then my father gave me a, a real one for kids, and then a more serious one. A couple of years after that, I started getting lessons, and I played along with all these records. Also to Stevie Wonder's records, I, I played along with them. I wasn't really interested in learning music from from sheet music more by ear, which is still something that I gravitate towards to more than reading music. Yeah. And then when it came to my 10th, yeah, when I was 10 years old, I started to be a little bit more interested in the piano. My father noticed that and organized a lesson with a friend of his, a colleague of his. So you were not forced to play piano? Not at all. Not at all. Oh, no, no, great. No. My, okay. my, my sisters, actually, they played piano. You had no chance of resistance. <laughs> yeah, it was very natural. Mm -hmm. Not forced, as you said. Yeah, it just happened. But it needed that little extra push of my father of saying, okay, here's a lesson for you with a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And he did a couple of those pushes again and again in my life that were very, very gentle, but very sincere. And that helped me a great deal sometimes mm -hmm. to figure out what I actually want to do, which isn't what he wanted for me or, or something. It was more... He wanted you to do now. Yeah, he wanted me to realize to realize my potential and my whatever, you know, to go with it. So when I was about to quit piano, actually, or not to quit piano, but uh, to... I said, yeah, because I was hanging around older guys on jam sessions playing piano. That's a couple of years later. I was hanging around with older guys who were a bit uh, pessimistic about the whole concept of being a musician, which is a general thing, actually. I get asked that a lot. So you can, it's easy for you to live, you know, make a living being a musician. And people were telling me about this. Yeah, it's great that you come to all the sessions and they're so, so interested and, and all that. But it's really hard being a musician, so you should think about doing something else also, which is what yeah. I told my father. So I was like, I think I want to become a lawyer. And uh, yeah, I wasn't interested in that, but maybe I saw a couple of movies with lawyers being, I don't know, in the spotlight or something. And I thought that was cool. Musical lawyer like, like Stephen Reich or so. <laughs> 
Yeah, there are some lawyers that play music, yeah. uh, but they are mainly yeah. lawyers. Yeah, you can hear that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to be that. My first uh, dream was actually to be a, an actor, and that didn't work out, or I didn't pursue that. Hmm. But then I told them, yeah, I think I want to become something like a lawyer and maybe then just do music as a hobby. Uh-huh. Yeah, he kindly said, you know, I'm supporting you, you know, I'm not supporting you without a reason. There's a reason why I support you in that music thing. Mm-hmm. I just enlisted you into the Jazz Academy in Dortmund. That was around the same time where he just enlisted me to another... Without asking you? No. Yeah, without asking me. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm, some of my teenage years are a bit blurry in my memory. But uh, yeah, I think he... He convinced me to enlist in this jazz academy thing, which was basically pre-study with first instrument, second instrument, ensemble playing, big band playing, harmony lessons. It was basically like studying, and that was some of the greatest learning experiences I had. And it definitely cemented my wish to become a musician. And that was really, really great. I met a lot of important teachers to me in that time. And it definitely set the way, set the path for me to study in Cologne and to, which is where I stayed ever since. What meant John Taylor for you, for example, then, talking about teachers? Yeah, well, one of my most important teachers, Uwe Platt, who is a great tenor player from uh, Dortmund, who was basically leading the, the jazz academy in Dortmund. He always gave me records and things to listen to. And he gave me a record of John Taylor, which is still my favorite record of John, which is called Roslyn on ECM. And I knew that he himself wasn't the biggest John Taylor fan. He just knew that I would be interested in this. And I really found this was um, a special thing to do, giving me a record that he himself maybe wouldn't have put on so often, but giving it to me because he thought I might be interested in that. That was the first time I heard John Taylor, and that was in, I think, 2003. That really changed me. So I, I needed to listen to everything I could from John Taylor. And I asked other teachers at the academy if they know music by this guy. And so another important teacher for me was Matthias Bergmann, a great trumpet player who also lives in Cologne, who sometimes taught at the academy and, and also went on tour with us with the big band and stuff. That was when I was 15, 16. He gave me lots of records by Kenny Wheeler and uh, also mm-hmm. other records where John Taylor played. So I really, really was diving into that sound. It all led to, yeah, there was a time towards the end of my tenure with the Jazz Academy where I started looking around. I, I want to study this music. Where can I study it? And also where did all my heroes At that time, I was very interested in John Taylor, in Achim Kaufmann, in Hubert Mm -hmm. Nuss, and in Florian Ross. Those were some of the guys that were, in a way, also... They weren't like Herbie Hancock or Chikoria guys I would never meet or something. These Mm -hmm. were people that I could actually meet and that I could actually see on concerts. So I thought I should maybe put an effort into getting a lesson with all of them which I did. I took a lesson with every one of them, but some of the lessons were connected to each other. So I think the first one was driving to Amsterdam to take a lesson with Achim Kaufmann, which was amazing. And then 
making contact with Florian Ross in Cologne. This was when I was still going to school. So I sometimes miss school to take a lesson with somebody. So Florian Ross, I would take a lesson with him in Cologne, driving to Cologne on the train. I, I still know I had all my CDs in my backpack and my Discman listening to the music mm. all the time. Going to Florian Ross's house and I played for him one song and then he said, hold on a minute, I have to go. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, did I <laughs> ruin everything? Because I, he was really a big hero of mine also. Yeah, he came back and he said, yeah, I just sent an email to John Taylor that he needs to listen to you. Ah, okay. I, I couldn't believe it, but he did. So that led to a, a lesson with John Taylor at the Hochschule in Köln, which was super nice. And I was super afraid and excited, but it was very nice. And John was very generous. I don't even think if he charged me for it, I'm, I'm not sure. But the thing is, Meanwhile, I had tried to contact Hubert Nuss and even also enlisted in another workshop where he was supposed to teach and he didn't come because somehow right before he was not invited anymore. Uh, so I was at that workshop. Hubert wasn't there. I told everybody that I enlisted in this workshop to study with Hubert and he's mm. now not there and I was really upset. I went back home, had that lesson with John Taylor. Meanwhile, I had written an email to Hubert Nuss who said, yeah, I'm not giving private lessons, so sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching too much. I'm not giving private lessons. Then John Taylor sent uh, an email to Hubert saying he should really meet me, <laughs> <laughs> give me a lesson. And then I had my first gig in Cologne, which was at Studio 672, at uh, which is now called yeah. at Stuttgarten, which is now called Yucky. Yeah. So that was my first gig with my trio. I had a trio back then with other people. And when I started walking on stage, I saw a guy leaning at the bar, leaning against the wall, and I noticed it was Hubert. <laughs> so I got super excited. <laughs> uh, we talked afterwards and he said, yeah, this sounds really good. Mm -hmm. You can meet me tomorrow. Meet me tomorrow. Let's have lunch. And we started becoming friends right after that uh, meeting. Uh, lots of times during the week, I would yeah, skip school for having coffee with Hubert. John mm -hmm. Taylor, Hubert knows those guys. I started a long relationship with them, eventually studying with John Taylor first at the Hochschule and then with Hubert knows also while I was studying with John. So John was an incredible person to be around. He was always very interested in what we students were listening to, what we were checking out. He uh, was always keen to play with us. So there was always a room with two pianos, which was great to see him play and to play with him, interact with him and ask him, oh, what was this voicing? Or what did you do just there? And he was always, uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> Look at it. I don't know what it is. And he would always show us music by Kenny Wheeler, give us things to sight read because my sight reading was so bad. So he would always give me a Kenny Wheeler song, showing me stuff about composition showing me classical music. Yeah, once I brought my trio with Robert and Jonas, I brought the whole trio to the lesson. And he basically said, yeah, I don't want to say any negative things. I just want to enforce what's already there, what's <laughs> good already. And he really liked the trio. And our relationship went on even after I studied with him because he quit teaching in Cologne at some point. And we met 
each other whenever we would play the same festival we would make sure to hang out and mm. hung out a couple of times after that and we also invited him to our own festival of the Klang Collective in Cologne we invited him to play solo and we hung out there and we always kept in contact I would always send him new records that I did or uh, send him emails whenever I would think of him and he was always very very encouraging responsive, responsive. Okay. I miss him every day, actually. I, I think about him a lot. I really think about him a lot. He was such a great musician, yes. Yeah, incredible. No doubt, yeah. You made an interview with Norma Winston, his ex-wife, or um, right. so to speak. That was moving as well, I think, uh, for me when I saw that. So this combination with Norma and Kenny Wheeler and uh, John Taylor, Azimuth, that was a an important influence for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the first record that I heard was How It Was Then and Never Again. I think it's from 95 on ECM and it shows the skyline of a city at night. That's a beautiful record. And then I checked out other Azimuth records. There's a great box set by ECM of them. Mm -hmm. That's a great group. Yeah, talking to Norma, That interview actually led to us playing together and uh, she invited me to her home also to just play through a couple of uh, Kenny Wheeler tunes and John Taylor tunes and talk about them the whole time and mm. was really moving experience. And she, she would always talk about this group and how important it was for her to find this, mm. these contemporaries and to find these guys and to learn from them. But I'm sure, mm. you know, she so influenced them as well, you know, in her own way. We will have uh, the podcast uh, from you in this series as well. Mm -hmm. And um, the one that you did with Bill Frizzell, which was amazing as well mm -hmm. and very touching. I like that. It was two hours, something like that. Yeah, very long. <laughs> yeah. I don't really set a limit when I talk to these people. I'm just happy to go as long as they want because I have a lot of questions or I am, mm -hmm. I'm just curious. So usually I have a lot of things to ask them. So with a couple of them, I was surprised how long they would go on with me because I wasn't, you know, with Joey Barron, I talked for four hours. With Ben Street, I almost talked for four hours. With Bill Frizzell, also two and a half. And I always came to the point where it was like, you don't have to talk to me. You don't have to, mm -hmm. you don't have to keep talking to me. We can stop. Because some guys also, I noticed, are so polite. They don't say, I actually don't want to talk anymore. Mm. So it's a matter of feeling when it kind of comes to an end. But with Joey Barron, was like, he, he said, no, I made time for this. I want to talk. And he actually never drank or went to the bathroom or something. Mm. <laughs> he just kept talking. And the same with Ben Street. Uh, when I talked to Ben Street, I think we started around 9.30 at night. I'm not sure, but all of a sudden it was 1.30 at night and uh, I needed to teach uh, the other morning at nine. So I had to stop, but I'm sure we would have gone on for another couple of hours mm. because it was so, so, um, yeah, with some guys, if you connect, you can go on, mm. you can just go on. It's not even about the topic or the, the question, as I said, it's more about connecting mm. and being curious. And I just heard an interview of Jim Carrey, the, the actor and comedian, talking about uh, Meisner, the famous teacher for acting. And Meisner said, 
if you're really interested in something, you'll be interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. And I found that very fascinating. And also I take that as a, it reinsures me that if I keep doing this, people might be interested, you know, mm. in that way, you can actually forget about the audience a little bit. That's true. That also means I can't interview people who I'm not interested in, <laughs> or yeah, yeah, which yeah. there aren't many, of course. I mean, because I will find something interesting with, there's always something to find. Mm. Even if you don't like the music that you can find something because you can connect on a human level, maybe. Mm. But the thing is, I don't see myself as a journalist or an interviewer. I'm just being curious. Hmm. So I need to have that fanboy level with me and that person. I need to have this in order to hmm. actually go through all the the emails and uh, setting the date and making time for it and, and then getting the gear for it and stuff like that. I can only take on these things when I really, really, when I'm a fan, you know. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there a role model for you, like Ethan Iverson's blog, uh, Do the Math? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. You know that? Sure. Yeah. And Ethan is doing a great job, and I've checked out a lot of his interviews. Yeah. And he's somebody who. Even though not, not in video, but basically transcribed, but uh, interesting interviews. Yeah. Yes. I really like them. And he's somebody who. This is somebody who came immediately to my mind when I. Uh, saw your first uh, investigates yes. the series. I thought, well, it's good that musicians do this job as well. Yes, I must say. Yeah, because they ask different questions. They are not journalists mm -hmm. in that way. The uh, questions might be very specific at times, but there is no other chance to get into things than to get to specific things. Absolutely, there are several role models. And um, some of them are not musicians, but Ethan is a great one. I really like his interviews and he really goes deep. I like that. There is the interview series by, what's his name? He had this band called Sound Prince with Joe Lovano recently, wears a hat and his record label is called Greenleaf Music. Ah, uh, Dave Douglas. Dave Douglas, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, sure. Okay. Dave Douglas, he does great interviews as well. I like yes. them. I've been listening to them. But also, yeah, I've been really into uh, people like Mark Maron, who's a great comedian, US mm -hmm. comedian. Uh, and I've been listening to his podcast, WTF, for I think now five years. He always puts out two episodes each week. And he's talking to actors, musicians, to directors, to politicians. Barack Obama came to his uh, garage to talk to him while he was president. And I've learned so much through his interviews, uh, the way he's interested, the way he engages in, in conversation. I actually learned a lot about listening from him. I learned a lot about, yeah, holding up a conversation to be interested in, in what specifically I learned from him. So he's a big role model for me, and I really would like to interview him at some point. <laughs> All some American guys like David Letterman, I really like how he's doing mm, yeah. interviews. I'm just watching interviews in general a lot. Mm. There's a lot of different influences. So not only musical influences there. Interesting. What is your time management? I mean, you talk, you see so much, you play so much, you do so much. I simply think that uh, 24 hours a day is not enough. Uh, so how long is your day? <laughs> My day is actually 30 hours. 
No. Okay. <laughs> no, I actually um, found that... These six additional hours yeah. are uh, full of improvisation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, my... Uh, yeah, actually, becoming a father helped me focus so much. I'm a father of two. I have a boy who's four years old and a daughter who's six years old. And I think I, my life got really, really turned upside down in 2014 when my daughter Elsa was born. And that helped me to be more focused in the time that I have. And I wouldn't have been able or I wouldn't be able to do all the things I'm doing without the incredible support by my wife, yeah, who's an incredible force in my life and inspiration and help um, she helps you to make the day uh, 20, 30 hours. <laughs> In a way she does, <laughs> which isn't to say that I'm not doing things with my kids. The thing is, once Elsa got into daycare and kindergarten, that meant all of a sudden it wasn't about, okay, now I have the kid and now you have the kid and I can do something. Mm -hmm. Now I have the kid and you can do something. It was about, mm -hmm. okay, here's from nine in the morning <clears throat> until three or four in the afternoon, you can actually do something. You can do something, and that means that time is sacred for me. Mm -hmm. At first, I was doing, <laughs> okay, I'll do a little bit of this. Maybe I should do this. No, I'm, I'm going to drink coffee now. And then I'm doing this. It didn't work. So mm -hmm. you settle into it, and then you see, okay, I, now I use this time to practice or to play piano. Then I'm going to do my taxes, but while I'm doing taxes, I'm listening to an interview because this will make it feel more nicely nicer you know <laughs> then i will write uh, booking emails but i will while doing that i will check out the new record by wayne shorter or whatever because this will make the booking process feel much nicer <laughs> then i will transcribe a song or something that will help me on different because i like to do different things at once and i don't really see them as multitasking multitasking no? yeah i don't see them as that per se because i think it of them as the music part makes everything else feel more nicely to me or feel mm -hmm. or make it make it better. I, I used to listen to music when I was mowing the lawn. You know, I was listening mm -hmm. to music okay. when I was on the bus. I was always listening to music. So I'm listening to music when I'm cleaning the apartment, when I'm doing something, when I would go with the kids who were asleep in the buggy, I would go through the park. I would be listening to music. You know, I wouldn't be listening to music when they would be awake and wanting to play with me. Although I would put on some music then as well. So I always try to incorporate that. So I'm listening to music. How do you make your choices then what as I to feel what like music? You'll... It might be, okay, I have to learn this song because I've said in my concert series, I want to play this song, so I want to know this by heart. So I would put on all the uh, versions of these foolish things in a row. Mm -hmm. So I'd be listening to that in three hours, these foolish things. And afterwards I would be able to play it, although I've been doing other things. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, so it becomes of a thing of combining activities with each other while staying focused and also staying focused in that time where you can work. And then after that, I don't work anymore. I might be listening to music. Yes, but I don't write emails anymore or stuff like that. So this focusing thing, and also when I'm on tour, I would be uh, yeah, writing emails and listening to music. I would be doing my taxes and listening to music and stuff like that. So 
that raised the question for me to when is the time to actually relax and do nothing. And I had to actually force myself to do that when I was on the road in the last year, the end of the last year, I had to force myself to, okay, now I'm not writing emails anymore. I'm watching a movie or just looking outside or whatever, mm-hmm. because that, I yeah, I had to be careful a little bit to not worry too much. And not health-wise, it's more, I'd say, more psychologically or uh, emotionally to be uh, not under pressure. pressure or, yeah, put put so much pressure on myself to create all the time, mm, yeah. to just be. And that's something where the family also helps. Taking decisions or letting happen, uh, that's yeah. something to decide, yes. <laughs> and also what really helped me is… Musically uh, as well. yeah. What also really helped me is starting to outsource things. So that's obviously a privileged situation to make that kind of a choice. But when I was doing the interviews for a year or so, I got help from a great friend of mine who stepped in as my producer. So I'm paying him to edit my interviews, to be my advisor. His name is Till Kammertöns, and he's been a great help since... This is for Jazz Ahead, and you played Jazz Ahead as well uh, with your trio. Yes. Years back. Mm-hmm. Did that mean anything to me, to you then? Uh, did, <laughs> did it mean, mean something to meant you? something to me. <laughs> yes, it did. It did indeed. Uh, what did it mean to you? Well, uh, it was a great uh, experience, actually. Also in the regard of being focused, because we talked about it, because, oh, shit, we only have 20 minutes. The first time we played it, I think, was in 2010. So the trio yeah. had been together for four years, and we had been doing this no set list approach for two years then. So uh, we thought, oh, how can we put all this? That we So we sometimes need the time to get into it. How do we do it in 20 minutes? And I'm always very optimistic and very... Uh, Yeah, I'm the optimistic guy. So I I just said, yeah, that's our frame, 20 minutes. And everything that happens in those 20 minutes will be what it is. Yeah, it might be shorter, but it could be very, very um, structured as well. And and so we just did what we did in an hour, in 20 minutes. Uh, It was just like one wave. And I think there's still a video online of it. And then we played as I had another time six years later. And I think in between I was at most jazz heads just running around trying to talk to people to promote the trio. What it meant was to play for an audience that is a bit unnatural, which you rarely have an audience made out of journalists and bookers most of the time who are looking for new people to book for their shows, which is a great opportunity, but can also mean a lot of stress for you as a performer, because you're thinking maybe too much about the end result, which usually stifles the creative spark, the creative process. If you think about the gigs you want to play (laughs) while you're playing a gig, Mm -hmm. it's not uh, optimal. But I think we made having that trust in ourselves and that joyous spirit when we play helped us to get into our little bubble of friendship and just stay there and hope that the creative process that we, we had on stage will transport itself to the listeners. And I think it did to some at least, because from some promoters, 
that we uh, wound up playing for in the following years, they came to me and said, yeah, the first time I heard you was in 2010 at the Jazz Ahead. And that's always, always, mm-hmm. yeah. it's always nice because you kind of put faces into this nameless crowd after, after the fact, you know, um, mm. which is nice because you look into an empty, what? not an empty, but you look into a, a crowd of faces that you don't know, or you don't even see the faces because it's black, dark in the room. And afterwards, people say, yeah, I was there. And then you can connect the faces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is really daring, I must say, to have this concept of non-set list and go quasi-virginal uh, into a gig. Yeah. Uh, under this pressure, I mean, with, knowing that all these journalists are there and these bookers are there, that is something hardly to understand that you you dared that <laughs> amazing <Yeah>. amazing <laughs> thank you um, i mean you normally you, you you prepare these 20 minutes very accurately that you play exactly on the second but not to do that in this condition in this situation really admirable i must say <laughs> to death we didn't think about that uh, in that way when we did it in retrospect you Lucky might you. think that. <laughs> Maybe you, if you thought about yeah. that, you would not have dared that. And also, how strange would it be to uh, develop something as a band and then you want to show this band and then do something completely different by structuring your set and making everything mm. polished? Mm. That would have been not an accurate uh, presentation of our music. So I think mm. it was the right thing to do. Yeah, but to keep on with that in such a situation is really daring. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Pablo, nice talking to you. Same here, thank you. Yeah, I think our time is over. Yeah. We have no not four hours, but uh, we could <laughs> go on easily, but we do that later. Yes, okay. So thanks for being in here and thanks for your music. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening in. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Follow us and our new Jazz Ahead blog. You can listen to the 2010 and 2016 showcases of the Pablo Hill Trio on our YouTube channel.